Hello everyone and welcome to Preparing for Launch, the show where it's our mission to make your space career take flight. We interview professionals from across the space sector to gain an insight into what they do and hopefully get some tips on how to join the industry. Welcome to episode 17. It's good to finally have the show up and running after Christmas, continuing with our fortnightly upload schedule. So for this episode, we have maybe one of the most original interviews uh, we've done on the podcast so far. I had the pleasure of sitting down a couple of months ago with Marina Barthanilla. Marina is an astrobiology postdoctoral researcher at the University of Westminster and has over 15 years experience as a perfumer. She is the founder of Aromatum, a company that conducts STEM outreach teaching children about space through their sense of smell. Marina holds a bachelor's degree in planetary science with astronomy from Burbeck, University of London. We had a fascinating chat about getting into academia as a mature student, finding new ways to inspire students to take an interest in STEM, the skills she developed as a perfumer, and much more. First though, this week's 60-second space briefing. This is your 60-second space briefing for Saturday, 21st of January 2023. It was not to be for Virgin Orbit. On Monday, 9th of January, the Launcher 1 rocket took off attached to the wing of the Cosmic Girl launcher aircraft from Spaceport Cornwall. The Start Me Up mission, carrying nine satellites, was due to be the first orbital launch from UK soil. However, at a height of 180 kilometres, the second stage suffered an anomaly and shut down prematurely, meaning the payloads did not reach orbit. Roscosmos and Ariane Space are in talks to exchange some OneWeb satellites for several Soyuz components that have been stranded in each other's territory since February 2021, according to Russian SpaceWeb. One of the main issues could be how to grant the Russian technicians visas to access the ESA facilities in French Guiana. This would be required to prepare the Soyuz components for shipping to Russia by sea. ClearSpace has closed a $26.9 million Series A funding round. The company's first mission is expected to launch in 2026, when it hopes to remove a piece of debris from orbit and bring it down into the atmosphere to burn up. The Swiss startup has received both ESA and UK Space Agency contracts to develop its active debris removal technologies. Great, so hello Marina, thank you very much for coming on Preparing for Launch. Thank you very much for inviting me over. So can you talk a bit about so what a typical day looks like? What uh, your your main job is at the moment? I know you're involved in a lot of things, which we'll definitely cover. I don't have a typical day. So it very much depends on whether I'm doing a perfume day, a university day, or a science outreach day. I tend to, when I have the time, I kind of block a day to do one thing or another. Um but in regards to the science bit, I am currently finishing my PhD, or trying to, rather. Uh, so in a typical day, I will do a lot of reading. I will do a bit of writing. I will 
leave my emails for the end of the day when I can. And at the moment, I'm trying to not spend a lot of time on social media, <laughs> basically. Um, I just don't have the time and I feel it distracts me so much. So I do get a lot of inquiries from schools and various things to do with science outreach. So I spend a lot of time looking into that at the moment and just finishing my PhD, really. Awesome. We'll stick on the sort of traditional science side for a bit. Can you yeah. just go into a bit of detail of what your PhD is on? Yes. So my PhD is related to the search for life on Mars. So what I do is... Um, I use a technique called spectroscopy, which um, probably a lot of people will be familiar with, but maybe other people won't have a clue what spectroscopy is. So basically, I use different instruments that use different types of light or radiation to investigate what things are made of. So I have mostly a combination of Raman spectrometers, FTIR spectrometers, and visible infrared spectrometers. And I work with various rocks that are analogous to the kind of rocks that we would find on Mars to see if we can somehow, with the kind of spectroscopy that I am doing, understand what they're made of and confirm if they have, in fact, something live, alive or some kind of organic material within them. Now, I know that they have it because it's why we've chosen them. But what I'm trying to do is understand the capabilities of the various instruments I'm using to see how much organic material they can detect, to find out what the problems are, what the pitfalls are, why sometimes we think that we have detected something organic when it isn't. So we're trying to smooth out all the details, all the problems that we may encounter when we go to Mars before we go to Mars. And the idea is that using this kind of spectroscopy on Mars, we might be able to identify uh, organic molecules within minerals that could tell us if there was ever life on Mars in the past, or if maybe there is still life surviving somewhere. And that's, that's what really I do. Interesting. I just shoot at rocks all day. <laughs> Fascinating. Would, would, this be, um, would this be analysis that would take place on Mars itself if we were to visit, or would it be with materials that we bring back to Earth? Uh, well, you could do it with both. So at the moment... Uh, we've got the Perseverance rover from NASA that's on Mars, and it has a Raman spectrometer. Um, ideally, what we would want to have on Mars is the ExoMars rover, which never made it there because of you know the awful things that have happened over the past few months in Ukraine. But the ExoMars rover, Rosalind Franklin, is a fantastic um, rover. It is equipped with so many different instruments to drill down to two meters below the surface collect samples and study them to look for organic molecules. And the idea is that it was going to select the most um, promising rocks, the, the ones with most potential, to uh, study them with various types of um, spectroscopy and see if you could find any organic molecules within it. Unfortunately, the rover isn't there. It never made it, but we're hoping that in the future it will. So these are the kind of instruments. Uh, some of the ones that I use actually are uh, replicas or, or very similar to the spectrometers that Rosalind Franklin has um, within there. And, you know, they could certainly be included in other missions as well. But then when we bring samples to Earth, we will probably also use things like Raman spectroscopy and mid-infrared spectroscopy 
to analyze these rocks and try to understand uh, what they're made of, but in terms of organic, to give us an idea of whether the organic molecules that we find within them could have been uh, made by life or they're maybe from um, geological processes. So it's really cool talking about this um, sort of super science-y space uh... Well, I'm trying to, to use because... kind of very simple language because sometimes I get a bit too weird with the language. No, no, absolutely. I think, no, I think I, I'm sure our, <laughs> our audience would will understand it. But my point being that it's really cool talking about this uh, quite technical stuff because am I right in thinking your your background or at least uh, earlier on in your career wasn't uh, science? You moved in a bit later in life. Very, very late in life. Yes, I was a complete science phobe when I was younger. I you you know you you've grown in Spain so you know a little bit what the education system might be there but when I was uh, about 14 so I'm, I'm older than you but when I was there we had to study maths and physics and chemistry up until age 16 if you went to high school and it took me three years to pass my exams the same exam from the first year I had to retake it about six times and I just I just couldn't I couldn't understand anything to do with science. Uh, my teachers didn't have a problem telling me that I was a little bit dim and that I should perhaps forget about science. And so I became really afraid of it and didn't want anything to do with it. Instead, I went down the humanities side. Um, I didn't actually go to university and I became a perfumer, which is something I've been doing for decades now. But then in my sort of mid thirties, so this is going back over 10 years now, I became very interested in the environment, in ecology, in environmental science, really. And I thought, in order to understand what I'm reading, I need to learn a little bit of science. <laughs> so I, um, I checked out the Open University courses. I did an introduction to science course there. And to my surprise, in my mid-30s, I realized that I wasn't stupid that I could do science, and that not only that, but I actually could enjoy it. So um, I started there. I also got interested in science and science communication because of Jim Al-Khalili. It was just one day I was watching television. There was a program about chemistry on television, and I thought, oh, my God, chemistry. Oh, I can't even, I, I can't even, you know, think about it but it was just there and I started listening to what the presenter was saying who was Jamal Khalili and he made it sound so relatable uh, so easy to understand so interesting that I thought why don't people speak about science like this why don't they make it easier for the normal person out on the streets to understand to not get bored and to not feel stupid when they're listening to it. So that was also the point when I became not just interested in science, but also in outreach and communication and in never doing what has been done to me. Like terrified me, like, I was terrified of science. And I think we need to encourage people to be interested in science, even if they don't want to be scientists. Uh, so that's how it all started. And then at 40, I decided to go to university full time and did my degree in planetary science and astronomy. Great. And where did you do that degree at or in? That was at Birkbeck, University of, uh, University of London. So it was an Great. evening class degree. I was going to university four evenings a week and studying full time while running my own business, which wasn't easy. Um, but I, I love, <laughs> I was at Birkbeck yesterday, actually, um, just 
training, training somebody on how to use some instruments there. And I went back and I said, I miss this place. The four years that I had at university were like the best years I, I can remember having. It was fantastic. And um, I just felt it was a very supportive environment for adult learners like myself. It really encouraged me not just to learn, but to to consider taking it further, which is why I decided to do a PhD when I finished. Great. Do you have any advice for maybe people who are in the in a career and want to switch careers into science or indeed go to university a bit later? I mean, UK says we focus a lot on typically university students yeah. and that obviously in, involves or implies that it's often a, a younger po- portion it, of the population. It tends to be. I mean, I have, I, when I was uh, an undergraduate, I did go to a conference a couple of times, which is fantastic. And I didn't feel out of place. I kind of felt a bit because I was a bit older than most people around but in terms of you know how everybody treated me what the themes were it was all very relevant to me so I think that one of the problems in space science actually is that it's not I don't think it's ageist just per se but I think it is geared towards younger people and I do know a lot of people who studied at the degree I did or who are interested in space science but who simply Uh, don't see a place for them in the space science community. And that is not untrue. It is not untrue. When you want to switch careers to something so very different, first you have to do your degree, and then you have to start thinking, if I want to have a permanent job here, how am I going to step up? And for somebody who's in their 40s, an entry salary of, you know, just £20,000 is not enough. They can't cover their mortgage and their bills and their family with that. Um, and there's a lot of funding available to do studying and to do projects, but it's always aimed at people who are maybe below 30. So I think for me, it was quite hard. There were a few things that I wanted to apply for and I couldn't because I was too old. And I found, I found that was a barrier. And it's the same when it comes to um, progressing after your PhD. So If you want to do a degree because you love the science, do it, absolutely. But don't expect that you'll be able to easily fit into the world of space science as a job. It's it's very competitive. You're most likely going to need to do a PhD. And after the PhD, you will have to do a series of postdocs that may take you to another country, to another part of the UK. And if you're settled in your life and you don't want to change that, that can be very, very difficult. So you have to be willing and ready to literally move your life somewhere else and start from zero, even though you might be 48 like I am, um, and not think that because you're older, you're going to get you know, any kind of different treatment, you're going to progress farther, uh, faster, that's not going to happen. So I did find that quite frustrating. And I am now at the point where I'm finishing my PhD and my next step, if I want to continue in the world of academia, is to do a postdoc maybe for 18 months and, uh, you know, not very well paid, perhaps move somewhere else. And that's not something that I'm willing to do. But there is a lot of work in the private sector. So that is a possibility for people who want to go this way. And I think in the private sector, they do appreciate age and experience a lot more than um, in other places. So there are opportunities, but I wouldn't say it's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, some very good advice and very good insight, definitely. I'm sure uh, some of our audience members will, will appreciate it. And um, we're going to take a couple of steps back now. You mentioned um, that 
you know, after you left school, I imagine you became a perfumer. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure we've ever had a perfumer on the podcast. Well, I know we haven't. Probably I'm not, not sure we ever will have again, <laughs> um, especially as it's a, a very specific uh, niche podcast about space careers. So yeah. how does one become a perfumer? And what is the job of a perfumer? Uh, so basically, um, I ended up being a perfumer because I am obsessed with smells. And in my head, the first question I ask myself about something is, I wonder how that smells. So that's just what led me on to being very interested in creating not perfumes, but smells and in understanding smell and how humans relate to the sense of smell. And then I just studied. Uh, you, you have to train your nose just like you train your ear if you're a musician. You have to learn thousands of smells and recognize them, know their chemistry, know how to blend them. Um, and I work in fine fragrance. I have my own brands. Uh, but some people just go off to creating fragrance for shampoos and laundry liquids. So it's not as glamorous as some people may imagine. Um, but for me, I, I love it. I still do it. But I have found a way to link it to my space science work, which is why I'm still doing both things. I haven't really switched career. I've just added the second one and I've merged the two things together. <laughs> Okay, seeing as you've sort of uh, you've uh, you've segued into it, we'll just go straight for it. So, how have you mixed your uh, perfumer career and space career? So yes. So, when I was in my second year of, of the of my undergraduate degree, I was studying a lot of chemistry and astrochemistry, what meteorites are made of, what the lunar regolith is made of, what the Martian regolith is made of, what the clouds of Jupiter are made of. And again, in my head, the first thing that comes up is, I wonder what that smells like. It's just, you know, it's not, I wonder what that looks like. No, I wonder what that smells like. And I imagine smells in my head just thinking about it. But as it happens, all these chemicals have smells. Uh, All these molecules that we were discussing, or many of them have smells. And some of them I had in my perfume lab. So I just went to my perfume lab and started smelling things and blending things to create what I imagine would be the smell of, say, you know, certain parts of Mars or some clouds of Jupiter based on the chemistry that I had learned. So out of that, I created the smells of space, which I have to say they are not nice. They're not nice smells. They're horrible. Um, But it was just a fun curiosity project for me, which I shared with with some of my friends who have children. And during those kind of play sessions with the kids and my friends, I realized that it was a really good vehicle to talk about space and science in a really fun way that was completely non-threatening, that anybody could participate in and have fun with it. And I thought, I'm going to develop this further. So this is how I created and why I created my project Aromatum, which started in 2017 when I organized a kind of pilot exhibition that was a journey it was like a space tour from earth well actually from starting at mercury to all the way across the solar system to the center of the milky way and so the idea is that people would stop at each planet or each moon and smell the different components that you might find there and learn about it so if you are coming to if we're at the moon for example there were several smells that you could smell for the moon one of them was the smell of 
spent gunpowder. And I would explain the reason I've created this smell is because the Apollo astronauts that went to the moon described that the smell of the regolith that was in their suits and their boots was like spent gunpowder. And suddenly you're talking about these missions that went to the moon, these people who brought rocks from the moon to Earth. And you're talking about science and they're suddenly understanding that we have moon rocks on Earth and they didn't know this before. And that people actually did go to the moon and that the mission was called Apollo. And that leads you on to, and hopefully in the future, this is back in 2017, we will go back to the moon, which is funny. We're having this, we're doing this podcast today with Artemis mission going to the moon. Um, so it's, it's, you're talking about science, but it's fun. And then we talk about the actual moon rocks that when you look at their mineralogy, they wouldn't have very much of smell. So you start showing pictures of moon rocks. You start talking about the minerals that made the moon why they're there, how do we know they're there, and you're just doing a science lesson, but you don't mention the word science, you don't use any jargon, and people are smelling and just making funny faces and having a laugh and making jokes and asking you questions so that you can answer them. So you do that with the whole of the solar system. And, and that's how it started <laughs> in 2017. So that's now five years, six years it's going to be since it started. Great. So... I'm very interested by um by by this thing about sort of teaching kids about uh smells. Um do you think maybe we we is smell something that can be trained I guess is my first question. Um, yes, the, yeah, I'm guessing absolutely. to say yes as you say you train it yourself but I, I guess yeah. uh, the your average person doesn't really think you know the same as you can tra you can no. train in the gym or work out other parts of your body you can improve your sense of smell. So yeah. can you do that? Yeah, yeah, you do that. So you would start with so if you're training at a perfumery school, you would um, you would have a selection of materials that you have to smell in a particular way and make notes about, and you would have to find a way to remember them. So we all think differently. We all have different ways of remembering things, but it's repetition. The more you smell something, the more you're going to remember it. And then you start smelling individual molecules and learning the smells of individual molecules and you put them together and learn the smells that they make together so it's very much like music you learn the different notes in perfumery we call smells notes as well same as in music so you learn the different notes individually what they sound like or what they smell like and then you do small combinations to learn what they sound like or what they smell like and then you do bigger combinations to create a piece of music or a perfume and this takes years of training it's not something that you can do in a few days but again like as with music the more you train the more skilled you get at it and you never finish training you're always going to be learning and the more you practice the better you're going to get so that's how we do it and unless you have uh, a kind of any sort of physiological problem that stops you from smelling if you have anosmia for example anybody could train their nose. You might have more or less ability or skill or, you know, be better or worse with it, but anybody can do it. And what's it like teaching kids that? I guess uh, I'm not thinking so, kids get taught how to yeah, smell. You so know, uh, you're not really regularly. teaching them. Yeah, but you don't really teach the kids to smell. They're just smelling. It's not about teaching them to smell. It's about giving them the smells and what happens, um, I mean, you, you can probably think about this. Anybody listening to this can think about this. There are smells that if you smell them, they suddenly make you feel in a certain way or they remind you of a person. So what happens with smell is the only sense 
that is, com is connected to our center of emotions in the brain and memories. So it's like a highway, like a speedy way of going from the outside world to your brain and creating a memory or an emotion. So what I'm doing with children is giving them something to smell that, first of all, it's going to create a fun experience of science. It's going to make them laugh. It's going to say, ooh, this stinks. Ooh, this smells like raspberries. Ooh, this smells like rotten eggs. They're having a laugh with it. They're not thinking, this is really hard. I don't understand it. So that's the first thing you're doing. You're creating a positive experience of science. That's the first thing. The second is, when you are talking to them about what they are smelling and why, they are they're going to remember this fact. When I say to kids that, they are smelling a molecule that is found in the center of the Milky Way, but that this molecule is also found inside raspberries. And I say to them, next time you eat a raspberry, think that you're eating a molecule that exists in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And that blows their mind. They're like, wow. And they're not going to forget that. So they're learning science. They're learning the names of chemical molecules. They're learning about the Milky Way, about the core of the Milky Way. There's a black hole in the middle, that there are these molecular cl clouds around it, that these chemicals that you find in space are also found on Earth because Earth is made from the stuff that's out there. But you're not, you're not teaching science. You're just having a chat over smells that are a laugh and some raspberries. And that's the idea, is to talk about science in a way that has nothing to do with science. So they're just having a they're just having a laugh. They're having a fun experience. They're playing games, but they're remembering the science afterwards. And it was completely effortless. It was like playing a game. And this doesn't just happen with children. It happens with adults as well. So I have done modified activities with people in their thirties, their forties, their fifties, perfumers, people who are interested in perfume, in art, in humanities. And the word science just puts fear in their hearts. But when we do this, suddenly they're having fun and they're remembering the science. That's great. It's almost like you're, you're almost uh, hacking uh, science learning in a way. Yeah, it's, it, it's it, funny it is how, actually, yes. <laughs> how would the world be different if like, our textbooks had things we could smell in them, um, well, even at university? I think that is part of the problem. It's the world of creativity and science are completely separate and they shouldn't be because you need to be creative in science. And there's nothing wrong with being science literal, um, uh, what's the word, having science literacy. We live in a world where everybody's believing conspiracy theories, um, ridiculous things that just the most basic science can tell you it's wrong. But if you don't know it or if you're afraid of it or if you are against it because somebody, you know, gave you a really bad experience of whatever science it was, you're not even going to be inclined to listen to a scientist talk to you. You're going to go, why am I going to listen to you? You have nothing to say to me. I'm not interested in your high speeches. Um, no, it's, it's just not for them. So we have to find a way to make non-sciencey people feel part of our world without making them feel stupid, which is a bad thing that most scientists do. And I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but scientists very often tend to talk at people rather than speak with them. 
especially when they don't know anything about the subject. And, and that's what puts people off. Puts me off. It put me off when I was younger. Um, and I'm just trying to do something different to see if that helps. And it does. Yeah, it's really cool. That's some, that's some, some really good points. Um, again, we're going to circle back to sort of being a perfect. I'm just really interested because it's an area <laughs> I would know nothing about. Yeah. Um, so how does one, I mean, we're all, I think most of us are familiar with perfumes. How does one go about creating a perfume? Like, maybe it, c- it can be a very complex question, but you know, what does a perfume lab look like? Um, okay, so it depends on whether you are, I mean, a perfume lab could be, small room or a really big room it just depends on whether you go to a big company or you come to an independent perfumer like myself so if you come to my perfume studio as i call it i have thousands of bottles with each one has different oils sometimes they're natural oils most often they are synthetic oils as well for you know the majority of the things that you have in the perfume are synthetic but you can also use natural things so i have a mixture of things and I have lots of lab equipment, so like precision scales, um, magnetic stirrers, beakers, um, you know, all sorts of things that you find in the lab because we are, we are, we're mixing chemicals. So it's like a chemistry lab with lots of chemicals that you mix together. You, I wear a, a white coat when I'm mixing. I tie my hair back. I wear gloves. So it's quite similar in that way. But before you do that, there is a creative process that could take months, which is what happens in your head. And that's the training. So the training is your head and your nose, are your brain and your nose are connected. So by training my nose, I have now achieved the point where I can create a fragrance in my head without smelling anything. I can just imagine how something is going to smell by thinking about the chemicals I'm going to mix and in which proportion. So then I write down the formula and I try it out. I start, you know, doing experiments just like you do in a normal lab. And those experiments give me a result that I might like or I may like to modify. So I evaluate the result and I think, okay, so this smells too sweet and uh, so I want to change that so I'm going to change this aspect of my formula and I do it again so it's very much like an experiment where you you have a hypothesis a hypothesis you have a formula that you think is going to smell in a certain way you try to prove your hypothesis you, you do your formula you smell the result and you're like it's not quite what I wanted so how am I going to change my experiment or my formula to reach the point where it is exactly what I want so there is there is absolutely no science in it if you don't want it. You could just smell things and blend them and just see what happens. But the scientific method and the scientific process really, really helps you to do things properly and to learn from everything you're doing. So being a perfumer can be very scientific as well. And most perfumers that go to a professional school tend to go to a perfumery school after doing a degree in organic chemistry, for example, or something along those lines. I didn't, but most perfumers, professional perfumers will have done that. I just followed a different path and I happen to have a good nose and I have done really well for myself, but that's not the common thing to do. Great. So do you think you have skills then from your, seeing, if you've gone, seeing as you've gone the other way, is yeah. you suggest most people go into perfumery. Do you have skills that you think uh, you've developed from your time as a perfumer that have fed into your science career? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, creativity is one of them and patience is also another one because, um, and also I have to be, so what's the word I'm looking for? Um, In perfumery, you have to be precise. So you're doing measurements that are very precise when you're doing your blends. You have to have a very analytical mind to evaluate the smells that you're learning and the results of your experiments. You need to be able to take notes about things that have gone well, things that have gone wrong, and how you then can change the outcome to to suit what you want. So I find this is very much the same as you do when you're doing an experiment in the lab. And I already had those skills. Okay, I did it with smells, not with, you know, lasers and rocks. But the fundamental principles behind them are very, very similar. And in the same way, somebody who studies science can apply those same principles to perfumery or to other creative pursuits. Great. And uh, maybe this one's a bit more of a personal, because I'm looking for personal advice. I think, um, I do know on a like creative side, um, in some, in some areas, I think, uh, as in your day to day, even if you're not interested in perfume, maybe, uh, although I guess most people wear perfume. So I guess we're all inherently, inherently <laughs> um, interested in smell as much as we might not think about it a lot. Yeah. Um, it's also useful, for example, like we went to wine tasting. Um, you need a good sense of smell. I think I, I really enjoy cooking and I think uh, smell is quite important for cooking. And I'm, I think uh, yeah. smell is very important when tasting food, if I'm, yeah. if I'm about correct. 80, yeah, it's, it's a big part of it. So, so how can like the, the average person go about sort of developing their sense of smell in their day to day, even if they're not sort of that interested in yeah. necessarily perfumes, um, but how can yes. we go about improving that side a bit more? Okay. So, I mean, the thing about the sense of smell is that it has always been undervalued. People don't realize how important it is. Um, and then COVID happened and a lot of people lost their sense of smell, including myself, which was a panic inducing moment. Luckily, I, I, got, I got it back, but some people haven't got it back or worse, they've got it back with distortion. So they don't smell properly, for example. So I think everybody has now realized how important smell is, not just to the way we perceive the world around us, but also to the enjoyment of, of life in general. Um, we, we smell our partners, we smell our children, our pets. We don't realize how important those smells are to us until we don't have them anymore. In order to taste food, we need the sense of smell. Most of it is, you know, what we taste is actually smell. Uh, it's actually aroma. And also for things like, you know, safety, smelling gas. There's a reason why gas smells the way it does. They add something to it so that it smells. And if there's a gas leak, you can smell it. Or milk that has gone off or food that has gone off. So it is important for our daily lives. What people can do, whether they want to be a perfumer or not, it's irrelevant is simply smell things with purpose. So next time you get something out of the fridge or you have an orange in front of you, just pick it up and smell it. But don't just smell it and then forget about it. Smell it with purpose and think, what am I smelling? What is it reminding me of? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Is it sweet? Is it salty? Does it feel cold? Does it make me feel happy? Just simply smell and think about what's going on in your head while you're smelling. And another time, just pick something else. Next time you're cooking, make a point of smelling the spices by themselves before you add them to the pan and think, oh, yes, this smells like black pepper. So I'm going to make a point of remembering this smell so that I know next time it's black pepper. 
and then this smells like cardamom and this smells like cinnamon. And then you can play a game at home with another person where you can just take a few things of the spice shelf or a few things and somebody puts them in front of your nose without you looking and see if you recognize the smell. So it's kind of fun, fun to do that. Um, and that has nothing to do with perfume. It's just developing your sense of smell. And the thing about it is that once, I always teach this in my classes, especially with beginners, and is that once you switch that on, it's on. You can't switch it off anymore. Suddenly you're going to notice the smell of things that you hadn't even noticed before. Like you're going to go, ooh, my laundry liquid smells floral or my, my washing up liquid smells lemony. Or you're going to go, you're going to be walking on the street in spring and you're going to go, ooh, what's that smell? I've smelled that before, but I hadn't really noticed it. And you're going to go looking for the flower that's giving out that smell. You're going to follow your nose. And it happens very naturally. And it's a really enjoyable part of life if you can actually do that. Great. Well, I think uh, on that note, that's some really good advice. Um, so I think uh, we'll finish there. Thank you very, very much for your time, Marina. My pleasure, Isai. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please follow the podcast if you want to find out when we release new episodes and leave us a rating or comment or send us a message on any of the UK said social media pages to let us know what you think about the show. Join us again next time for more insights from professionals. Until then, stay safe. Preparing for Launch is UK said's official podcast. It's hosted by me, Isaac Alatrio, produced by Seb Ravinsky and Louise Whiteman with support from Sana Mughal.